Hello and welcome to another episode of Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host, Actually Taylor, and this week we're going to France during the Hundred Years' War for a free accident that caused a peace treaty. No, for a yeah, for a natural disaster that caused a that forced a peace treaty, and then back to the skies of World War Two for a decidedly less grim story. Yeah, for a less grim story than last time. But it's one of my, but it's a story that I love, and yeah. So let's get straight into it. So we're gonna we'll cut to music, and yeah, we'll cut to music, and be right back. And we are back. So. Let's talk about Black Monday. First of all, some background. So, the Hundred Years' War essentially lasted between 1337 and 1453, but it was actually a series of separate conflicts between the kingdoms of England and France and their various allies, and it was essentially for control of the French throne. It got started by King Edward III of England, as he had inherited the Duchy of Aquitaine, but this meant that he was also a vassal to Philip VI of France. But he wasn't so keen on that, so he refused. And of course, as the royals do, they don't like being said no to. So Philip VI just confiscated the duchy. And this back and forth essentially led to a war breaking out. And by 1340, Edward III had declared himself the King of France. And along with his son, Edward the Black Prince, he led the armies on a very successful campaign across France with a lot of notable victories. Despite the French's larger army there, they were known for great success with their longbows, causing the French to suffer heavy losses. However, in 1348, the Black Death reached England, and the effects essentially put the war on hold until the mid-1350s, where it had receded, receded enough to allow the country to start rebuilding its finances. And in 1355, Edward the Black Prince resumed the war, and invaded France. By August that year, he began a campaign of raids, which were known as Chevaugés, which essentially was made up of raids where he would attack a town, and anything portable was looted, and anything else was either broken that broken or burnt, in order to demoralise the people, discredit the French leaders, and also drain the king's financial resources. With one observer at the time essentially saying that as he rode to Toulouse, there was no town that he did not lay waste. The next year, in August 1356, he was threatened by a larger army under King John II, who had taken over the French throne from his father Philip VI, who died in 1350. So yeah, the English tried to retreat, but were blocked at Poitiers. So the Black Prince tried to negotiate terms with the French, but John II's army attacked anyway on the 19th of September 1356. But despite this, English archers were extremely effective and were able to bring down the first three cavalry assaults to the point where the archers were running out of arrows. And at this point, many were wounded or exhausted too. So the French king deploys his reserves, who were an elite force. And it seemed like the French would essentially win this battle, but the Gascon noble Captal de Butch managed to flank them with a small group of men and captured King John II and many of the nobles leading to John signing a truce with Edward III. And in this absence, a lot of the government started to collapse, 
of the French, and the king was ransomed at 2 million écus, which were the type of coins used in the French at the time. However, John II believed that he was worth much more than that, and insisted that his ransom be raised to 4 million, which is a questionable move, but pride does what pride does. And after this, the First Treaty of London was signed in 1358, which is essentially an agreement setting the ransom for John at 4 million écus. And the first instalment was to be paid by the 1st of November 1358, but the French defaulted on the agreement. So yet another treaty was signed on the 12th of March 1358, which allowed for hostages to be held in place of John, which included two of his sons, several princes and nobles, four inhabitants of Paris, and two citizens from each of the principal towns of France. And while these hostages were held, John returned to France to try and raise funds to pay the ransom. And additionally, the treaty also meant that England gained possession of Normandy, Brittany, Anjou, Maine, and all the coastline from Flanders to Spain. I mean, I knew it hostages as in, like, kept in a cell the whole time. They were kept under something called honourable captivity, which under chivalric code meant that they were given free reign to move about and stuff. But... In 1362, John's son, Louis of Anjou, who was one of the hostages held in Calais, escaped his parole and refused to return. So John found out and felt duty-bound to return to captivity out of shame. And he left Paris and gave himself up to the captain of Calais, who returned him to his honourable captivity in England. And he spent the rest of his reign there until April 1364, where he died in London. Which, as a side note, was actually a big affair and he was honoured as a great man so chivalry I guess. Soon later in 1358 a peasant revolt in France called the Jacquerie took place and due to the people in France being deprived during the war and their treatment by free companies and the French nobility especially after the Battle of Poitiers and led by Guillaume Cale they joined forces with other villages and started committing atrocities against French nobles and destroying many chateaus in the area north of Paris. They were later defeated in the summer at the Battle of Mello and along with all the files that happened after a rebellion. But it was enough that Edward III assembled an army at Calais in 1359 to capitalise on it, with his first objective to take the city of Rheims. He besieged it for five weeks, but the fortifications held out, and he lifted the siege and moved on to Paris in the spring of 1360, sacking the outer suburbs of Paris. But at this point, his army was pretty weak from harassment from French companies and disease. So after a few skirmishes, he moved his army to the town of, of Chartres. And this is where it gets interesting. And here an event happens which was massive. It was even mentioned in Shakespeare in The Merchant of Venice, where the quote is, It was not for nothing that my nose fell a-bleeding on Black Monday last at six o'clock in the morning. Now, I'm not entirely sure, but... I think uh, this may be at least partially referencing when Edward III came ashore in July 1952, where to quote, When the King of England arrived in Hogue St. Vast, the King issued out of his ship, and the first foot that he set on the ground he fell so rudely that a blood breast out of his nose. The knights that were about him took him up and said, Sir, for God's sake, enter again into your ship, and come not aland this day, for this is but an evil sign for us. Then the King answered quickly and said, Wherefore? This is a good token for me, for the land desireth to have me. Of which the answer, all his men were ripe joyful. So that day and night the king lodged on the sand, and in the meantime discharged the ships of the horses and other baggages. There the king made two marshals of his host, the one the Lord Joffrey of Harcourt, and the other the Earl of Warwick, and the Earl of Arundel Constable. 
and he ordained that the Earl of Huntingdon should keep the fleet of ships with a hundred men of arms and four hundred archers. And also he ordained three battles, one to go on his right hand, closing to the seaside, and the other on his left hand, and the king himself in the midst, and every night to lodge all in one field. Note that that is in Old English, so and it's a direct quote, so, you know, take it as it will. But yeah, the Siege of Chartres. So, um, and just start. Strength quantum Wikipedia, like straight up, <laughs> says... On the English side, 10,000 made up of 4,000 men-at-arms, 700 continental mercenaries, and 5,000 mounted archers. Whereas on the French side, it just says low. (laughs) And on the 5th of April, 1360, he led his army of 10,000 men to the gates of Paris, headed by his most trusted lieutenants, including the Prince of Wales, the Duke of Lancaster, and the Earls of Northampton and Warwick, and Sir Walter Marnie. Men who had essentially been responsible for a lot of the English military successes in the last 20 years. And this was one of the largest English armies fielded in the Hundred Years' War. And like I said, it wasn't possible to get into the city, so so over the next week, Edward would, would try to lure him into open battle. But this would prove futile. So after laying waste the countryside, he went to Chartres, which was a French cathedral city. And on Easter Monday, he arrived at the gates. And once again, the French defenders refused battle, sheltering behind fortifications, and a siege ensued. And they made camp outside on an open plain. Now, as night fell, suddenly a storm materialised, and killing several people, along with the temperature falling and huge hailstones falling out of the sky with freezing rain to accompany it. Now, along with the high winds, the English tents essentially gave no shelter from the storm, and all the men and horses were pelted by huge high-speed chunks of ice from the sky. And with two of the English leaders killed, panic set in among the troops. And in half an hour, the storm killed nearly 1,000 Englishmen and up to 6,000 horses. On top of that, among the injured English leaders was Sir Guy Bichamp II, who who would die of his injuries two weeks later. And this storm essentially produced more casualties than any previous battle of the war. Now, the... Now, it looks a bit about hail, and apparently the, and the speed at which it's falling the ground can vary a fair bit, with general hail zones of 1 centimetre wide can falling about 9 metres per second, or about 20 miles per hour, while stones that can be like 8 centimetres wide, which is probably about the size of a cricket ball, or baseball for you Americans, can fall at a rate of 48 metres per second, or which is the equivalent of 110 miles per hour which is way above the speed limit. Though it's hard to be accurate with that, because um, since hailstones can vary in size and shape. And I've also got some re- some hail records from modern times, which doesn't include Mega Cryometeors, which is a great name, which is essentially large rocks of ice that aren't, that can fall from the sky but aren't associated with thunderstorms. And since they're not officially recognised by the World Meteorological Association, records of them aren't given as hail records. So the heaviest hailstone on record was 1.02 kilos, or 2.25 pounds, in the Gopalganj district in Bangladesh on the 14th of April 1986. The largest diameter was in Vivian, South Dakota in the US, and that was, it was 20 centimetres wide, or 7.9 inches, with a circumference of 47.3 centimetres, or about 18.5 inches, on the 23rd of July 2010. Um, the largest circumference one was 18.74 inches, or 47.6 centimetres. Now, these large ones, like, they're about the size of a football, and, or a soccer ball for you Americans. Um, the uh, biggest uh, average health precipitation rate is in Kerato, Kenya, 
which I probably don't need to add, but I like talking about Kenya. My mum was born there. And it experienced hailstorms on an average of 50 days a year, as it's close to the equator and has an elevation of 7,200 feet. And it also holds the world record for the most amount of hail in one year, getting hail for 132 days in one year, which is ridiculous. But anyway, back to Black Monday. So, and after this, Edward III was essentially convinced that this storm was a sign from God against his efforts. At the end of the storm, he was said to have dismounted from his horse, kneeled in the direction of the Cathedral of Our Lady of Chartres, uh, reciting a vow of peace. And this essentially convinced him to negotiate a peace treaty with the French. And the next day, Andrew and de la Roche arrived in the English camp with peace proposals, with Edward agreeing. And that day, he withdrew his army from the gates of Chartres, ending the one-day siege of the town. And shortly after this, representatives of both crowns met Bretigny, and within a week, they agreed to a draft treaty, which was ratified by the kings, as the Treaty of Calais on the 24th of October, 1360, under which Edward III agreed to renounce the French crown, and in return, he obtained full sovereign rights over an expanded duchy of Aquitaine and Calais. And this would last for nine years until Charles V of France would resume the war after the Black Prince, who had refused summons from the French king in Paris. Probably for good reason after his campaign, but still. And this would be known as the and this would be known as the Carolian War, which would last until 1389. Till 1415, when the Lancastrian War broke out, which was the final foot which was the final stage of the Hundred Years' War. Uh, when King Henry V of England invaded Normandy, to 1453 when the English lost Bordeaux, and the Hundred Years' War would finally conclude. I think that's all I have for that, so, um, yeah. I I felt like I kind of had to do it, because as soon as I read the, the, like the sentence, a freak hailstorm devastated Edward's army, killing an estimated 1,000 English soldiers or and 6,000 horses, I believe my exact words were, oh shit. So, but yeah, on that, We'll cut to music and head to the skies of World War II to talk about the Charlie Brown and Fran Stickler incident. So, see you in a bit. And we are back. So, let's talk about the Charlie Brown and Fran Stickler incident. So unlike the last time we were in World War II skies, this is going to be a bit less grim, and towards the end, maybe even uplifting. So we'll see how it goes. But of course, it's still a war, so it's sticking, it's sticking to the dark topic theme. The background for this is essentially um, during World War II when the Allies were bombing Germany. The British Royal Air Force and the US 8th Air Force was targeting strategic targets in the state-free Hanseatic city of Bremen, which was a town with, um, with an okay amount of fighters, but, but the important thing is that it had heavy anti-aircraft artillery, and Bremen had a few strategic targets there, with the main ones being the Atlas Works Shipbuilding Company, the Bremen Oslophausen Railway Station, the Brown Vulcan shipyard, the Deutschschiff and Maschinenbau shipyard again, the Focke-Wulf aircraft factory, the Borgwood motor transport plants, the Kurf AG oil refinery, the Norddeutsche Hut AG steel mill, and the Valentin submarine pens. And 
over the course of 1939 to 45, the RAF had dropped 12,831 long tons of bombs on Bremen, including in June 1942, where it was target for the RAF's third thousand bomber raid, which involved 1,067 aircraft. And on the 9th of November 1942, Bremen was also added to the USA Air Force target list. And that's important because what we're going to concentrate on is the crew of a B-17 bomber from the US Air Force. So the main pilots we're going to be talking about are the second lieutenant Charles L. Brown, aka Charlie, who was a B-17F pilot with the 379th Bombardment Group of the United States Air Force's 8th Air Force, which was stationed at the RAF Kimbleton in England, with the other pilot being Franz Stigler, who was a former Lufthansa airline pilot from Bavaria, who was a veteran Luftwaffe pilot attached to the, excuse me, for my German, Judge Schwader 27, who would eventually serve in over 400 combat missions on nearly every front of the war. And during time this story, he was an ace with 27 victories. So, and yeah, Brown's um, bomb was also nicknamed Ye Old Pub, and in some things I've seen also Porcupine, and they were on a bombing mission to Bremen, which was the crew's first mission, targeting the Focke-Wulf 190 aircraft production facility in Bremen. And during their pre-mission briefing, the 527th Bombardment Squadron was informed that they might encounter hundreds of German fighters, and additionally Bremen was guarded by 250 flat guns. Now, Yield Pub was assigned to fly the, quote, Purple Heart Corner, which was a spot on the edge of the formation, which was considered particularly dangerous, because when shooting aircraft formations, they'd target the edges, instead of shooting straight through the formation. However, since one bomber had to turn back due to mechanical problems, uh, Brown was told to move up to the front of the formation. And for the mission, the crew of the old pub was made up of 2nd Lieutenant Charlie Brown, aka Charlie, who was the pilot and aircraft commander, 2nd Lieutenant Spencer Luke, aka Pinky, the co-pilot, 2nd Lieutenant Al Sadok, aka Doc, who was the navigator, 2nd Lieutenant Robert Andrews, aka Andy, who was the bombardier, Sergeant Bertrand Coulomb, aka Frenchy, who was the top turret gunner and flight engineer, Sergeant Dick Pechut, who was the radio operator, Sergeant Hugh Eckenrode, aka Ecky, who was the tail gunner, Sergeant Lloyd Jennings, the left waist gunner, Sergeant Alex Yelisenko, aka Russian, who was the right waist gunner, and Sergeant Sam Blackford, aka Blackie, who was the ball turret gunner. Now let's get into the actual mission. Now, Ye Old Pub started its 10-minute bomb run at a height of 8,320 metres, or 27,300 feet, with an outside air temperature of minus 60 degrees Celsius, or minus 76 degrees Fahrenheit. And during the run, two of the B-17s they were with were, were pretty quickly hit by heavy flak, and a fair few of them went down, with Brown's bomber being hit at least once in the left wing, uh, leading the crew to have to shut down one of the engines, which took them out of the formation. And before the bomber had released its bomb load, the flak had shattered the plexiglass nose, knocked out the number 2 engine, and further damaged the number 4 engine, which was already in questionable condition, and, and essentially had to be throttled back to prevent overspeeding. As with some engines, even a momentary overspeeding uh, occurrence can result in either greatly reduced engine life or even catastrophic failure. 
the damage had slowed down the bomber and and like I said, Brown wasn't able to remain with the formation and he fell back. And as a struggler, he was an obvious target for enemy fighters. Well, I've read two things. Like some say, like one place said it was they were met by about eight enemy fighters, while another source says they were met by over a dozen enemy fighters. Being a mix mixture of Messerschmitt BF 109s and Focke-Wulf FW 190s of Jadschwader 11. I don't think it comes up again, but if it does, I'm just going to call it JG 11, which was a German fighter wing of the Luftwaffe during World War II, with the primary role of defending northern Germany against Allied day bomber raids. And it was attacked by fighters for over 10 minutes. Though they did manage to fight back a bit, with the old pub's gunners taking out between one and three fighters on their own. But the fighters would cause the bomber to sustain even more damage, including damage to the number three engine, which at that point would only produce only half power, meaning the aircraft could only use about 40% of its total rated power at the time. The bomber's internal oxygen, hydraulic and electrical systems were also damaged and the bomber had lost half its rudder and its port side elevator, as well as its nose cone. And with systems failing, many of the gunner's weapons jammed due to frozen mechanisms, as on top of the damaged mechanisms, the ground crew hadn't oiled the guns correctly, which left the bomber with only two dorsal turret guns, and one of three forward-firing nose guns out of 11. Most of the crew were wounded at this point, with the tail gunner, Eckenrode, having been decapitated by a direct hit from a cannon shell, Yelisanko was critically wounded in the leg by shrapnel. Blackford's feet were frozen due to shorted out heating wires in his uniform. Pichut had been hit in the eye by a cannon shell, and Brown, the pilot, was hit in his right shoulder. And to make things worse, the morphine surrettes on board had frozen, which needless to say, made first aid efforts difficult. And on top of this, the radio had been destroyed, and the exterior was heavily damaged. And one source I read stated that oxygen deprivation and wounds had caused Brown to, despite being a pilot, to black out momentarily as the bomber spiralled towards the earth. But he managed to wake up in time and said that his first memory was of dodging trees. That as they were flying away, the damaged bomber was spotted by Germans on the ground, including Franz Stigler, who I mentioned earlier, who at the time was refueling and rearming at an airfield. It's worth noting at this point that Stigler was only one bomber kill away from earning the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross, aka the Knight's Cross, which was the highest award in the military and paramilitary forces of Nazi Germany at the time. So he takes off in his Messerschmitt Bf 109 G6 fighter plane, which at the time also had a 50 caliber Browning machine gun bullet embedded in its radiator, which risked the engine from overheating, which, needless to say, wouldn't be a great thing when flying. But despite this, he managed to quickly catch up with Brown's plane. So he flies up by like by the plane and watches the bomber and waits for the tail gunner to raise the guns. But of course, at this point, there was no tail gunner. And seeing the rear guns not reacting, he moved closer and saw just how badly damaged it was, with bullet holes all over the aircraft and flak damage. And through the bomber's damaged airframe, he could see the injured and incapacitated crew. And to Brown's surprise... He didn't open fire, but he flew next to the cockpit and started to mouth and gesture to Brown, who couldn't hear anything, and pretty difficult to lip-read at that height. But Brown saw him trying to gesture and stuff, and what Stickler was trying to do was trying to get them to fly to Sweden, which was a neutral territory, or land and surrender. And he started flying in formation on the bomber's portside wing, so that German anti-aircraft units wouldn't target it. This is a pretty risky manoeuvre, seeing as they could fire back at any point if they misunderstood, and he escorted them to the English Channel. Though Brown, who still wasn't sure of Stigler's intentions, 
uh, ordered his dorsal turret gunner to point at Stigler but not open fire to warn him off, especially before he came too close to England. And so understanding the message and pretty certain that the bomb was out of German airspace, Stigler saluted him and flew off, essentially allowing the nine men having the mission on the 20th of December to make it home in time for Christmas. And somehow all men but Eckenrode survived. And after this, Brown managed to fly the damaged aircraft 250 miles, or 400 kilometers, across the North Sea and land this plane at, at RAF Seething, which was the home of the 448th Bomb Group. And at the post-flight debriefing, he informed his officers about how a German fighter pilot had let him go, to which they responded not to repeat this to the rest of the unit, in order not to build any positive sentiment about enemy pilots. Brown would later comment that someone decided you can't be human and be flying in a German cockpit. But regardless, he still said nothing of the incident to his commanding officers, as he knew that a German pilot who spared the enemy in combat would risk execution. Like, looking back on it, you can appreciate it, but at the time, B-17s were hated due to the amount of bombs they dropped on the country, and their ability to take out several enemy fighters with their guns. So not only did Stigler give up his chance for the Knight's Cross, he also risked execution by doing this. And later he'd recall... And later he said he did this because he recalled the words of one of his commanding officers from Jadschwader 27, Gustav Rodel, um, during his time fighting in North Africa, who said, If I ever see or hear of you shooting at a man in a parachute, I will shoot you myself. And he'd later comment that, To me, it was just like they were in a parachute. I saw them and couldn't shoot them down. Brown would go on to complete a combat tour, while Franz Stigler would later serve as a Messerschmitt ME-262 jet fighter pilot in... Jagverband 44 until the end of the war. And after the war, Brown returned home to West Virginia and went to college, returning to the newly established US Air Force in 1949 to serve until 1965, and would later work as a State Department Foreign Service officer, making numerous trips to Laos and, Viet and Vietnam. In 1972, he retired from government and moved to Miami to become an inventor, though I'm not entirely sure what came of that venture. Well, meanwhile, Stigler moved to Canada in 1953, which was about eight years after the end of the war, and, and became a successful businessman. Now, 1986 comes around, and the retired Lieutenant Colonel Brown was asked to speak at a combat pilot reunion event, which is called a Gathering of the Eagles, at the Air Command and Staff College at Maxwell AFB, Alabama. And at this meeting, someone asked him if he had mem any memorable missions during World War II, so he fought back and recalled the story of Stigler's escort and, and salute. But his memory was pretty hazy, so someone encouraged him to seek out the German who saluted him uh, to try and fill out the rest of the memory. And to quote from my notes, to make sure it wasn't a dream or hallucination. And so he spent four years searching for records of the US Army Air Forces, the US Air Force, and the West German Air Force, all in vain. But then he wrote a letter to a Combat Pilot Association newsletter, and a few months later, he received a letter from Stigler, who was living in Canada, which read, I was the one. And after a lengthy phone call, where Stigler described his plane, the escort, and the sloop, Brown had all the confirmation he needed to know that he was the one that did it. And from 1990, Charlie Brown and Franz Stigler would become close friends and remain so, until 2008, where both of them died within several months of each other. And that's all I have. So, um... I wasn't sure if I have another World War II Skies story, so so close from to the last one, but but I figured I'd do it while I have enthusiasm because currently one of my favourite songs is No Bullets Fly by Sabaton, which is entirely about this event. 
and uh, I've been listening to it a lot recently. But it's also quite a fascinating event and look into just the lives of the pilots. But yeah, on that, we'll cut to music and then come back for an outro. And we are back. So, I really hope you enjoyed those stories this week. I found both, like, when researching, I found both of them pretty fascinating. My shout-outs, once again, will be pointing you to murder.ly, where you can find a bunch of other really cool true crime podcasts. And I also want to sh- give a shout-out to someone I've been talking to on Twitter today. So, Rich, thank you so much for being so supportive while we were talking earlier. Uh, it really means a lot. Also, thanks to everyone else that's um, communicated with me, etc., uh, it really gives me a lot of motivation when people when people do communicate and stuff. And some social media plugs. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash blood and the rocks, Twitter and Instagram at the Bloody Rocks, and email at botrpodcast at gmail.com. Um, if you want to support the show, you can find us at, at patreon.com slash blood and the rocks. And yeah, and it would, yeah, that would really mean a lot. Because it's pretty tough maintaining a weekly podcast by myself. And you can get a bunch of cool goodies over there as well. And on that, I think we're done. So, thank you for listening. Rate, view, and subscribe. Don't forget to tell your friends. And have a great week. I'll see you soon. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special mom in your life. And what better way than with the Osea's limited edition skincare sets, featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited edition sets that are perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their advanced eye care duo brightens, awakens, and firms the skin around your eyes, while the golden glow body trio nourishes and smooths the skin all over. Both sets are packaged in giftable boxes. They're so beautiful you can skip the wrapping. And the best part? For a limited time, you can save up to $46 on Osea's sets. Plus, get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. This Mother's Day, get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. Go to OseaMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off site-wide.